Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Just a quick note to our online listeners. I'd encourage you to download the chart that goes along with this study of Daniel 9. On our webpage, returntotheword.com, you'll find it underneath the study materials. Head to the downloads, and there you will find a chart titled Daniel's 70 Weeks. Again, that chart is titled Daniel's 70 Weeks. Enjoy the study, and thanks for listening. In our last study of Daniel, we made our way through verse 24, three verses left in Daniel 9, but the importance of these words for your understanding of God's plan for mankind cannot be overstated. And so we're going to slow down, we're going to break it up over two studies, but let's go ahead and read all three verses just to keep it all in context. Daniel 9, verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince, who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Leopold Kohn was a Jewish rabbi who lived in Europe in the 1800s. Leopold studied the text of Daniel 9. He looked at verses 25 and 26, and he came to the conclusion that the Messiah had already come. Just from looking at the Word of God, just from a careful word-by-word study of the text, he could tell that the Messiah had already come before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So he began to ask around, wanting to know where the Messiah was. Another rabbi made the suggestion to him to go to New York and you will find the Messiah. (laughs) That seems like an odd statement to go to New York and look for the Messiah. But keep in mind here that this was the late 1800s. And New York, it was considered the place to be. And so Leopold, he actually took this suggestion. He sold almost everything that he owned and bought a ticket to come to America. Now, once he got to New York, one day Leopold went out for a walk and he heard singing coming from a church. He went in and he heard the gospel message being preached. And that night he received the Lord Jesus Christ as his Messiah, his Savior. Just a short time later, Leopold bought a stable, swept it out, set up some chairs, and he began to hold gospel meetings. Now, this outreach grew and became known as the American Board of Missions to the Jews. This ministry continues today. It is now known as the 
chosen people ministries with around 100 missionaries reaching Jewish people all around the world. Think of the great number of souls who have learned of Christ as their Messiah simply because a Jewish rabbi looked at a prophetic text in God's Word. He saw its importance. He saw it as something that God intended for us to understand, and he took the time to study what it means. What a lesson for the church. What a transformation we would see if this became the mindset today. Dr. George Sweeting once estimated that more than one quarter of the Bible is predictive prophecy. Both the Old and New Testaments are filled with promises about the return of Jesus Christ. Over 1,800 references appear in the Old Testament alone, and 17 Old Testament books give prominence to this theme. And in case you think this is something that you only see in the Old Testament, of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references to the Lord's return, one out of every 30 verses. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to this great event. And listen to this, for every prophecy on the first coming of Christ, there are eight on Christ's second coming. Start with the simple belief that his prophetic word can be understood. Start with the belief that God wants you to understand it, and then use the normal rules of language to study his word. This will take you a long, long way. The prophecies of God were not meant to be ignored, and they were not meant to be distorted, twisted to fit the theology of men. They were meant to instruct, to encourage, and to bring hope to his people. Churches that diminish the teaching of prophecy, they're robbing the saints of the blessed hope that we are to have in Christ. And so it is with a profound sense of urgency that we look to Daniel 9. In verse 24, Gabriel told Daniel that the Lord was instructing him about a period of time known as the 70 weeks. And so really this is what we're talking about. 70 of these seven-year periods for a total of 490 years. Now keep the 490 years in mind and look for the time markers in the text that God has given us. We don't have to bring our interpretation into the text. It's given to us. It's right here. But the key to the entire passage is focusing on the time markers that God has put in his word. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to Restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. If you write in your Bible, circle the words from and until. Those are your first time markers. Those are the words that identify the timing of this passage for us. Know therefore and understand. (laughs) Great irony here as we look at the great amount of confusion that exists in the church today with prophecy. People don't understand. People don't know what God has shown in his word about his plans for the future. And many don't even care. Gabriel told Daniel, know and understand. Grab the next part of the verse, another critical piece of information. Gabriel said, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. 
Now, the key to understanding this countdown to Christ is finding the starting point. From, from, this time marker gives us the starting point of this entire 490-year period. Listen to how the Hebrew reads. From the time when a word of direction will be given for rebuilding Jerusalem. The Lord had Gabriel tell Daniel that this 490-year period would start when an edict was given, when a command was given. But notice specifically the command given would be to rebuild Jerusalem. The divine clock would begin to tick with a decree that authorized the rebuilding of Jerusalem, not the temple. No mention is made here of the temple. The subject is the streets, the city, the walls. The angel Gabriel told Daniel almost a hundred years before it would happen that an edict would be given to restore the city of Jerusalem. So let's work our way through this. Since this would be the start of this period, the understanding is that this would be a public command by a ruler of a kingdom to rebuild the city. And looking forward, I'll give you a hint. Think of a certain king of the Persian Empire. But here's how we come to this. I'm going to take the time to go through this to give you the reasoning of how we come to our understanding of Daniel 9. If we look at the Bible and if we look at history, we can see four different edicts, four different decrees regarding the return of the Jewish people and the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem and the temple by Persian rulers. In 538 BC, Cyrus gave the decree to rebuild the temple. Jot down 2 Chronicles 36, Ezra 1, and Ezra 6. Cyrus actually gave this decree not too long after the events of Daniel 9. Because remember, Daniel 9 took place in 538 BC, the same year as this first decree. But it doesn't fit for two reasons. First, just simple math. If you take the 483 years and subtract it from 538 BC, you're left with a date that is roughly 50 years before the birth of Christ. And nothing significant took place prophetically at that time. But second, the decree to rebuild from Cyrus in 538, it was to rebuild the temple, not the city of Jerusalem, as Daniel foretold. And so we move along. The second decree came from Darius I. You can find this in Ezra 6. But all that happened with this decree was that it confirmed the first one. It reauthorized the work on the temple. The third, it came in 457 or 458 BC. Now this came from Artaxerxes. Again, in Ezra, this time Ezra 7. This decree came when Ezra returned to Jerusalem. Some hold to this view that this is when this period started. Here's the problem. If you study Ezra 7, you find out that this was really more about reestablishing proper worship at the temple than it was about rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. This decree provided for animal sacrifices in the temple, and so we're left looking for the decree that would fit Daniel 9 perfectly, and it came in 444 BC. This is the decree seen in Nehemiah 2. Let's take the time to look at Nehemiah 2, and I think you'll see that it fits like a glove with the prophecy of Daniel 9. 
So turn, if you would, to Nehemiah 2, and we'll hit the highlights. Remember what is happening here. Judah taken into captivity by Babylon. Babylon had fallen to Medo-Persia. Nehemiah had prayed for four months about the conditions of Jerusalem before he approached Artaxerxes. The moment came for him in chapter 2 when the king, he noticed his countenance. And verse 2 records that Nehemiah was dreadfully afraid. The people were so afraid of the king of Persia that great care was taken that you didn't even breathe on a king. But Nehemiah had to speak. And so he did. Pick it up with verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Notice, notice the focus on the city. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Spontaneous prayer from Nehemiah before he talked to the king and the specific request to rebuild the city, not the temple. Perfect, literal fulfillment of Daniel 9. Verse 6, still here in Nehemiah. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Now verse 9 informs us that Nehemiah, he even got a military escort. And what you see is that Nehemiah surveyed the city. He wanted to see how bad it was. In the second half of verse 13, Nehemiah said, He viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Jump down to verse 16. Nehemiah finally told the Jews why he was there, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he has spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. Nehemiah 2 is specific. 
The focus was not on the temple, it was the city that was rebuilt. The 490 years would start in Daniel with the command to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Now, this decree came in March 5th of 444 BC from Artaxerxes, fitting perfectly with Daniel 925. So make your way back there if you would. Read verse 25 of Daniel again. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until that is our next time marker, until Messiah the Prince, an obvious reference to the Christ. Not a lot of information here. All that we know from the rest of the verse and from verse 26 is that 69 of these seven-year periods of time would go by until something important would take place with the Messiah at the first coming of Christ. Until ties us directly to the end of the first 69 of these seven-year periods. This is something that would come about during the first advent of Christ. Now, Gabriel does not tell us whether this refers to the birth of Christ, the baptism of Christ, the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. At this point, it doesn't tell us if it refers to the death of Christ. It's just a very general reference in this verse. It just tells us that 69 of these seven-year periods would go by until the Messiah, the Prince. Now, living on this side of the prophetical fulfillment, and we can do the math and see the specific reference. Now, let's work our way through the timing. 69 weeks of years. 69 times 7, it puts us at 483 years. And if you take this date of the decree from Artaxerxes in 444 BC and just simply move forward, we find ourselves directly at a key event in the ministry of Christ. Now let's remember that they used a different calendar. The Jews used a calendar that was based on the lunar cycle instead of the sun like ours. In other words, instead of figuring 365 days in a year, they had 12 months, each typically with 30 days based on the moon. That's a little bit of an oversimplification, but you get the basic idea. What we're looking at here is a prophetic timetable. And we know from Revelation 11, Revelation 12, and Revelation 13 that a prophetic year in the Word of God is considered to be 360 days. So remember, the text is only dealing at this point with 69 of these weeks of years, or 483 years, if you will. Adjust for the prophetic year of 360 days, and this brings you to a grand total of 173,880 days. And then it becomes a matter of simply walking our way forward in history, starting with our date, in 444 BC from Nehemiah 2. You find yourself at a key date in the ministry of Christ, the day of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now the math, it takes us to a date of March 30 of 33 AD for Christ's entry into Jerusalem. The time marker until in verse 25, until Messiah the Prince, it doesn't give us much But living on this side of the prophetical fulfillment, we can know that the date worked out to Christ's entry into Jerusalem when Christ was introduced as the king to his people. 
Now, very detailed studies have been undertaken that consistently show the timing of these events. Sometimes the dating may differ by a number or two. That's not the point. The point is the key events that took place just as prophesied in God's word. So turn, if you would, to Zechariah 9. There's one little verse tucked into Zechariah 9 that we need to get our eyes on. Zechariah 9, verse 9, notice the prophecy of the coming Christ. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Remember the history here. Cyrus the Great of Persia allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. About 50,000 of them went. Haggai and Zechariah were a part of that crew. When the construction of the temple stalled, God raised up Haggai first to keep the Jews building. After Haggai came Zechariah. During this time came this amazing prophecy that would look forward hundreds of years to the Messiah, their king. Notice the wording of verse 9. He would have salvation, the deliverer, the one to give salvation to others. Listen to Isaiah 62, verse 11. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. The Hebrew people were being told that their Messiah was coming. He would bring salvation. But notice what else? He would be lowly and riding on a donkey. If a king came in peace, he would ride on a donkey instead of riding on a war stallion. Christ rode on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The humility and the love of the Creator is beyond our comprehension. So let's jump forward again to the New Testament to look at the fulfillment of this. Make your way to Luke 19. We'll take a moment to read this, and then in a minute we'll put together some of the pieces. Luke 19, we know from verse 11, Jesus and his disciples were near Jerusalem. The text tells us that the disciples thought that the kingdom of Christ would be soon. So starting in verse 12, all the way through verse 27, he tells them a parable that the master would be away for a time. There would be a delay before the kingdom of God would be ushered in. While he was away, they should be about his work. And how they served him would determine their positions in the coming kingdom of God. Skip down to verse 30 in Luke 19. They are approaching Jerusalem. Verse 30, Jesus told two of his disciples, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus, you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Skip down to verse 35. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. 
Now, the people, they understood the meaning here. They understood the symbolism that the king had come. The Pharisees, they got it too. That's why they call for Jesus to rebuke his disciples because they were calling Jesus their Messiah, their king. But even if the people were silent, the stones would have cried out in worship of the Savior. His time had come. All of history pointed to the presentation of the Messiah to his people. Jesus would be worshiped. The words of verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hold on to these words and make your way to Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, we are looking at the same scene. But first, I would want you to notice that in verses 4 and 5, Matthew directly tells us that the entry of Christ into Jerusalem was the direct fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9. I'll pick up the text in Matthew with verse 9. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As the people would make their way to Jerusalem for the great feasts of Israel, they would typically sing some of the Psalms, the pilgrim Psalms. They would worship God by singing the Psalms on the way to Jerusalem. Here, they were singing Psalm 118. The words from verses 25 and 26, a messianic psalm that predicted the coming Christ. Hosanna, meaning save us, we pray. Save us, son of David, another messianic title. And then we start to see the opposition to Jesus, the chief priests, the Pharisees. In verse 42, the Lord talked about his rejection. They sought to lay hands on him. This back and forth continues. Skip down to the 23rd chapter of Matthew, down in verse 37. And make sure you keep this in context. The Lord is addressing Israel, not the church. Matthew 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, Your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, and notice this next part, notice what the Lord told the people of Israel. You shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The church, the church will be rescued from the tribulation, which is the 70th week of Daniel at the rapture. But not Israel, not Israel as a nation. Israel will not see the Lord again until the second coming, at the end of the tribulation, at the end of the 70th week of Daniel 9. And at that time, they will call out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Make your way to one more passage, and then we'll finish up our text in Daniel. Revelation 19.11 is our destination. And again, we're looking at the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. And remember the simple teaching. If a king came in peace, he would ride on a donkey. Christ did this at his first coming. If a king came on a war stallion, he was coming for a different reason. Revelation 19 verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes 
were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. The day will come when Christ will ride on a war stallion. He came in peace the first time. He will come for war the second. So head back to Daniel 9 now. I hope you're starting to see the importance of understanding the past because without a firm grasp of the Old Testament, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle to come to a proper interpretation of the new. The 483 years came to an end when Christ came into Jerusalem. But notice the next phrase in verse 25 of Daniel 9. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Still talking about the first 69 weeks of years. Seven weeks, 49 years, 62 weeks of years, 434 years. The point of breaking down the 483 years is to tell us that something significant took place. 49 years after Nehemiah chapter 2. There's not a lot of information in verse 25, but the context does give us a clue because the context is all about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And we know historically from Nehemiah chapter 6 that it only took 52 days for Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. But when you think of the entire city being rebuilt, the best we can tell is that the 49 years was probably the amount of time it took to restore or rebuild the entire city to how it was before, to repair every road, building, and home. And as you read through the book of Nehemiah, you see that the walls of the city were in ruins and had been torched. The homes were not rebuilt yet. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, we learn that the city streets were so full of debris and destruction that it was hard to get through the streets. Mass destruction. It took a fair amount of time to rebuild the city. And take a look at the last part of verse 25. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. Street, a wide place could have been a reference to the marketplace or the public square. The wall around Jerusalem includes the idea of a moat. Without the walls and the moat around the city to protect the people, it was hard to repopulate a city. No one would feel safe. So in order to rebuild Jerusalem, one of the first things that needed to be done was to rebuild the city's defenses. And that last phrase, even in troublesome times, The book of Nehemiah describes some of the problems that they encountered as they tried to rebuild the city. Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 1 tells us that the Hebrew people were mocked by the people that lived in the land. And all throughout the book of Nehemiah, you see that the people were in danger while they were rebuilding the walls. They even had to arm themselves while building. Chapter 4 of Nehemiah tells us that they had half of the men building while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and had on their armor, ready to defend the workers. We're going to cover verses 26 and 27 next time, but take a look at just the opening phrase in verse 26. And keep in mind, first came the seven weeks of years, first came that 49 years then the 62 weeks of years. 
look at the first part of verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Notice that we have another time marker here in our text, after, after the 69 weeks of years. Now, one reason that I believe that the first 483 years ended with the triumphal entry of Christ is because of this expression here in verse 26. The flow of thought is clear in Daniel 9, 483 years from Nehemiah 2. And the conclusion of the 483 years would take place just before the Messiah would be cut off. The king was introduced to Israel. Then Daniel says, after this, soon after, the Messiah would be cut off, cut off, killed, the crucifixion of Jesus. Follow the time markers in Daniel. After the 69 weeks of years, the Messiah would be cut off. Not during, after the 69 weeks of years, after he was introduced to the people as their king, then the people turned on him, meaning Christ would be rejected by his people and crucified after this period came to an end. And that is what we looked at before in Matthew 23. The people of Israel had rejected the ministry of Christ. The public teaching ministry of Christ was done. And soon, Christ would go to the cross. John 1 taught us, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Daniel 9.25 is a concise, prophetic statement from Daniel's perspective about the future of Jerusalem and the Hebrew people. It told them that Jerusalem would be rebuilt, that their people would face opposition, but their Messiah, their Messiah would come. The years were catching up to Simeon. He made his way through the dirt-covered streets of Jerusalem. It once had been an easy walk. As a young man, he had less of a problem navigating through the alleys, the markets, and crowded roads that led to the place of worship. But the years had taken their toll. The young man Simeon once was, now hid behind the wrinkles and the squinting eyes of a man who spent a lifetime serving the Lord. He had been to the temple often, but on this day, he was led by the Spirit to head there again. Simeon knew that each day brought him one day closer to the fulfillment of God's promise, that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Making his way up the steps of the temple, Simeon would have found himself on the custom floors of the outer patio. He was not a priest, not a prophet. Simeon was simply a soldier in the Lord's army. A common man, a man with the Holy Spirit upon him, in a time when prophecy was rare, and the Lord was often silent, the word fell upon this servant, whose very name means to hear and obey. Called to duty. Simeon waited expectantly for the one who would bring salvation to the world. The tug of the Spirit of God undoubtedly moved him. Something was happening, and then it happened. There he was. Simeon's waiting had come to an end. At that moment, a young couple topped the temple steps and came into the porch. The couple had walked many miles. They had a young child with them. The crowds would walk past the mother and the infant 
without a second glance. But not Simeon. I doubt that he could turn his eyes away from the picture of perfect innocence. He approached a young family. Simeon took the babe in his arms, and he knew, he just knew immediately that this was the child of promise, the one Simeon had waited so long for. Messiah, Savior, Christ. This child was Emmanuel, God with us. He was the light of the world, the Word made flesh. He was the one of whom the prophets foretold, the suffering servant of Isaiah, the son of man of Daniel. This child was Jesus, the Holy Son of God, broken into human history. Simeon held the Lord of creation in his arms. God had kept his promise. He had granted Simeon the privilege to see, to touch, to embrace the Christ. Luke tells us that Simeon then declared, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon's life was complete at that moment. He had lived to see history change. Standing there with the baby Jesus in his hands, he knew that time itself was now divided into two halves. All the years leading up to that moment and all the years that were yet to come. Standing at the crux of history, Simeon foresaw the greatest battle of all time fought and won by this one child. He told Mary, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And there he stood, breathing the breath of Christ, whole in the arms of God. Long ago, predicted by Daniel, seen by Simeon, Christ our Savior, revealed to us in the authentic, inspired Word of God. We join the Apostle Paul in praise when he wrote, To the King, eternal, immortal, invisible. To God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we close out, I want to thank you for listening. If you want to keep current with our studies, there's a lot of ways to make sure you never miss another episode. You can subscribe by email, get our free app for your tablet or your phone. You can also use the Apple Podcast app or one of the Android apps and have all the episodes delivered right to your mobile device. You can find all of the links on our webpage, returntotheword.com. It's underneath the podcast tab. And if you're feeling social, help us out by sharing this episode on Twitter or Facebook because by telling others, you can help us tell the world of God's amazing grace. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. 
Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.